I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. My guest this week is musician, songwriter and singer Johnny Marr from 1982 through 1987. He was the guitarist and co-songwriter of The Smiths. I mean, say no more. He has at one time or another been a member of The Pretenders, The The, Electronic, Modest Mouse and The Cribs, as well as becoming a prolific session musician. In the last decade, he has worked in film whilst carving out a successful solo career with a series of critically acclaimed albums. He's also a published author. His autobiography, Set the Boy Free, was published in 2016, and his new book, Mars Guitars, was just released. That is in October of 2023, as we record this conversation. The book's publisher describes it as a stunning photographic presentation of the guitars that define the distinctive sounds and style of Johnny Marr with personal reflections and insights from the legendary guitarist himself. And Johnny is right here. So good to catch up with you. Hi, Nick. Nice to see you again. Before we talk about how the book came together, I read a quote this morning from you where you said, guitars have been the obsession of my life. They've been a mission and sometimes a lifeline. So two questions. How did the instrument come into your life? And can you expand on what you meant when you said a lifeline? Oh, yeah. Well, the first one I got was when I was five, it was a little toy, little toy wooden thing with plastic strings, you know, that I have no idea what made me obsessed about that thing. It wasn't just given to me. I kept dragging my parents into this shop or outside this shop that sold brooms and buckets and um, this household stuff. So that would have been in the late sixties. And um, my parents were like, dad, he's, he's obsessed with this, this little toy guitar. So I got that and then carried that around with me for a couple of years. And, um, and then I upgraded them when I was eight to one that I could actually tune up and start to learn some chords and songs on. And I, I started to, uh, then try and just emulate my, my heroes, which then the very first hero I had was Mark Boland from T-Rex still is now mm -hmm. that sort of stuck with me. And, um, and then it's just been, you know, I, I, I always just wanted to be a guitar player, whether that was a professional guitar player or a hobbyist or whatever, but it was the most important thing in my life. I always was, I come from a musical family and so they encouraged it, you know, a very working class family and, um, left school at 15 to be in a band with adults. Um, by this time I was best friends with Andy Rourke, who was the, became the bass player in the Smiths, formed that band at. I think I was 18, 19 when the Smiths formed. And um, yeah, and then this is where the new book, Mars Guitars, it, it starts there uh, at that point in my life. But then mm -hmm. the other thing you were mentioning about being a lifeline. <clears throat> yeah, um, that's right. I mean, from being a, so from being maybe 14, 15, you know, growing up in the suburbs of England, I wasn't a particularly, uh, it wasn't like a, like a, a miserable or tra traumatic childhood, th thankfully, but, um, there was plenty of kicking around, wandering around the rainy streets at night. Um, me and my, my then girlfriend who's now my wife, um, the two of us with nowhere to go and wondering how I was going to make being a guitar player a full-time occupation. As I say, I left school 15, you know, the truth of the matter is I was kicked out of the house. Didn't really particularly, you know, uh worry about that too much, went to live with Andy Rourke. So I was scuffling around a lot. And some of those times, were, you know, they were, I'm generally a, a fairly optimistic person, but some of those times were pretty tough, you know, I didn't really have a lot of money and 
was scrambling around and, you know, it seemed like it was never going to happen for me. All, all I wanted to happen was to make a 45. I mean, obviously I had big dreams of playing Madison Square Garden or whatever the hell, but we all look those crazy dreams we have. Amazingly, a lot of that stuff came true, but um, emotionally, when the lifeline, the guitar, it's going to sound incredibly corny, but the quickest way of completing this idea, it becomes like your best friend, you know, it becomes your best buddy. You, you can spend a few hours with it. It can give you hope. It can, you can think, oh man, I've written this great new riff. Or I'm going to turn it into a great song. And then that continued when I, when I formed the Smiths, you know, and, um, you can hear it in a lot of the Smiths music for people who really know. And then that stuff I went on to do with the, the, uh, so it's very sad, but it's quite emotive music. It's not all this charming man and how soon is now. And in that music, you can hear someone, uh, you can hear the way I was feeling, which was quite introspective and melancholic and stuff. And, um, the guitar gave me something to do and a way of expressing it really. And it still does to this day, you know, yeah. The other thing about guitarists as well is you, you take it wherever you go, right? It's like you might not have your girlfriend with you wherever you go or your friends with you, but you've, you've got the guitar. And, you know, if you're feeling like a little sad, you just pick up the guitar, tune it up and start playing. That's right. All, all those different emotions. I mean, I've got one there just over my shoulder there. Uh, for people who are starting out in the teenage years, you're right. You can take it wherever you want. But if you're an outgoing person, it's a way of finding some solitude and some reflection, you know, in the way that some people do in their journals. That's the way I was as a kid. I'd be playing, I'm talking 11, 12 or whatever. And I'd just be like, I've got to go play. I've got to go practice. I'd just disappear off the football field or climb down from the tree or whatever it was doing <laughs> or, or at the fun fair. And I'd just go, um, where's Johnny? They kind of got used to this. Where's he gone? And I'd just go off into my bedroom and just play. And it didn't seem like I was practicing. It just seemed like I was, you know, play. You know, the, the clue is in the title, I was playing, but that, that's how I got to kind of learn. Uh, and then, so for outgoing people, it has, it gives you that refuge, but also for, I think for people who are a little shy, it gives you a way of bonding with other people. You form a little band when you're in your teens. This, this is going on all over the world right now, Nick, you know, mm. uh, and people are doing it now more and more so through social media. Guitar culture, like everything, is changing because of the digital world. Guitar culture is no different. And, you know, I this stuff comes up on my phone and you just, from all over the world, so many girls. And it is, it is a fact that it was, it, it was less common back when I was starting out. There were some people, I mean, notably people like Chrissy Hind, who was a pioneer. Obviously, there was Joni Mitchell and there was like the female artists, but people out, out front in a band with a telecaster like Chrissy was. Mm. Whereas now, you know, there are people making these connections of, of girls in Singapore and in uh, South Korea and all over the world, you know, Idaho, whatever, and just dazzling. They're in there recording themselves on the phone, playing all kinds of, not just indie rock, uh, fusion, metal, and all kinds, math rock and all. It's, it's amazing what's going on there. So, you know, I get asked a lot about is, you know, rock music dying, is guitar culture less potent? I, I say it in the book, you're talking to the wrong person, if you want to ask, ask that question. You, you and I have both been around long enough to see guitars come into fashion, go out of fashion, come back into fashion. And I don't know if it's just me, maybe you might have an opinion on this, but it does seem to me 
that the pandemic uh, was a time where a lot of kids, a lot of younger people started picking up guitars. And guitar music seems to be, as you said, you can see, you know, people all over the world making music at home, putting it up on TikTok or whatever. And it does seem to me that, as you mentioned, you know, it can be your friend if you're alone. Uh, if you're stuck somewhere, you can just pick up your guitar. And it seems to me that guitar uh, music is, is uh, I don't know, it just seems like there's a lot more of it around than there was maybe 10 years ago when we were more electronically inclined, I guess. No, that's true. It is. It, that did happen during the pandemic. I mean, I worked, I still work really pretty closely with Fender, very closely, really. And, um, you know, they, they ship so many guitars and, uh, they're just developing, they've just got this whole new thing. It's like new pedal board, uh, digital pedal board out that, you know, is for the, the person in a rehearsal room. I mean, obviously they'll be at Glastonbury and Coachella and all of this, but there's a, the culture is adapted and, um. You know, I spend most of my time in the UK, of course, and um, there's a whole slew of guitar bands doing new stuff. It doesn't sound like Oasis. It doesn't sound like me. It doesn't sound like Foo Fighters. It's going to be interesting to see where this new guitar music is uh, going to end up because undoubtedly the culture, music culture is always shaped by the technology. You only got to look at Jimi Hendrix and Sgt. Pepper for that. Mm. You know? um, so it follows that 50 years later, music is, is old music is, is uh, pretty much dictated to by the, the technology. Um, and you're right, 10 years ago, so many people were gravitating towards things that make beats and things that mean you can record yourself. I get it. They cost 200 bucks, 240 bucks. These things are now digital technology. It's cheaper to make. And you and your pals can get the 230 bucks together, which used to be back in my day, that was how much a demo would have cost you. And it was obviously, worth a lot more but now you can get this recording technology do it on your phone etc etc and you and your mates can get some beats down and be a an entity over over a weekend now there's a good and bad to that but anyway the technology definitely does lead the way coming back to guitars essentially it was built these things that we know that we're talking about invented in the 50s in the united states never been bettered it's just a fact they, they got it right the first time around. Let's come back to the book. Pat Graham is the photographer and was around during your time with Modest Mouse. How did the idea of the book of your guitars come about? Well, you mentioned Pat there. I mean, I was such a fan of Pat's photographs. He came out of the kind of, um, the sort of bikini kill kind of Pacific Northwest sort of scene. So he's a really interesting guy. And anyway, he specializes in these real close-up macro blown up abstract, beautiful things that just happen to be of guitars, you know, so you give Pat your guitar, say, will you photograph it? And it'll come back looking like some really amazing landscape. You go, what is that? Is that like the desert in the winter or something? So Pat will be like, oh no, I, I kind of got fixated on this little, this bit of rust on the, on your pickup or the way the switch was broken or this stuff, you know? And, uh. So the impulse for the guitar was really about four or five years ago, I started to think about how great it'd be if I could create a very beautiful book that was all abstract photographs, uh, using my guitars as a source material, but that would sit alongside in some people's houses and hotels and whatever presents for people. They would sit out alongside Zen gardens and mm. uh, 20th century architecture and beautiful art books. I thought, I really thought that would be a victory 
for the guitar if I could bring the guitar into that world. Because frankly, there are so many guitar books and that I've been I've been owning them for 30 years. They're all pretty boring. I, I, I find them really, after about 10 pages, I just start kind of zoning out. Right. Yeah. There's plenty of books where it's just a picture of a guitar and you're like, well, it's a nice picture of a guitar and it's a nice guitar. And maybe there's a story. It says who played it and what, and then you flip over and there's another one. The thing about this book, from, from what I've seen, I haven't actually seen it in person, but I spent a lot of time before we spoke looking at it online uh, and looking at the photographs. As you mentioned, it's not just a picture of a guitar. There are very creative shots, as you said, of a piece of rust, maybe, or a broken, uh, a broken switch. It really is uh, more abstract. Yeah. Well, that that was, as I say, that was the very first consideration. And then a couple of more things actually came along the way, which is I was maybe being a little naive in thinking that's all uh, all I needed to do. But all these stories started to come out when I started to pull the guitars out. The sh arranging the shoot was, the technicalities of the shoot was very, it's kind of tricky because we didn't want to get the reflections in. The colors have got to be right. The light had to be right. and there's a lot of these guitars. So in, in the in the shooting of uh, all of the, uh, doing all the photographs, I just genuinely didn't anticipate that the story of me loaning Radiohead the guitars for when they did in Rainbows, I'd forgotten about that. I forgot it happened. And then, you know, giving Bernard Butler from Suede one of my Smith's guitars and then the Noel Gallagher stories, the, the Wonderwall guitar is in there. Um, that happened right at the very, very end. Noel texted me and said, oh, hey, guess what I remembered? Uh, on Wonderwall and Don't Look Back in Anger, it was your Strat. And that happened. And then there's, there's obviously, the, I wrote this Smith song on that and that Smith song, we recorded this one on this. Uh, all of these stories came out and that was a really unexpected, and I'm still kind of dealing with that now. You know, I did the, uh, the event last night with Fred Armisen downtown in LA and did one in the, in Brooklyn the other day, one in London. And I'm, you know, the, the photos of these guitars are going up on the screen and I'm trying to explain to the audience why I got this one when I did, what it meant, why another guitar player would say, oh yeah, okay, that's a, that's a Scotty Moore, Elvis guitars, Elvis Presley's guitar player used it, blah, blah, blah. Explain to people who are non-guitarists why you get these things and then demonstrate the songs that I wrote on them and why they did what they did. I wasn't expecting any of that. I just thought I was going to make a coffee table book full of abstract photographs. Right, so right, right. I'm, I'm learning that it's been 40 years of, of this kind of uh, amazing, unexpected journey, really. You actually had to borrow some of the guitars back, right? Like guitars that you'd given to other people to, yeah. to get the photographs. And I can imagine as you're picking up these guitars again, you're remembering a song you wrote or a, a gig you did with it. Um, what about connecting you to your own personal history? outside of music does it remind you of who you were at 25 and what was going on in your life as a as a guy let alone a, a musician in a band or a husband in a relationship that's entirely what it did and i was really uh knocked out when it did that maybe the second day it all started when i picked up a, a epiphone casino which is a 60s guitar that i bought because it's the one that the kinks used to use and the beatles and stones and um and then this thing started off with all of them then because I was open to it. I, I remembered exactly what was in my mind or where I was at uh, in 1984 when I bought the guitar, I wrote uh, Nowhere Fast on it. And so I went home very late at night and uh, 
you know, I said to Angie, my wife was like, who was with me at the time, you know, we've been together since 79, so we were kids. And uh, I started to tell her this thing, very thing you were talking about, like, wow, God, I had this real feeling with that Epiphone Casino. Like, you know, it like really brought it all back to me. I remembered this and I remember that. I remember the apartment we were staying at in Earl's Court. And I remember these faces came back to me who were around the Smiths from Rough Trade Records. And, you know, some of them had departed. So it, it was a, an emotional thing, usually good, not always. Yeah, I remember the, the young man I was at 20. And then, then Angie actually said to me, I remember taking a, I remember you writing Nowhere Fast. And I, in fact, I think I've got a photograph of it. So, oh, okay. So anyway, that photograph ended up in the book, mm. which was, uh, yeah, me writing Nowhere Fast. And then, uh, and then I remembered, well, I remember when I picked the guitar up that it was the guitar that I used on How Soon Is Now. And so I plugged it in an amp and it sounded exactly like How Soon Is Now. Mm. So then, because I was open to that, I was really enjoying it. And uh, I don't know whether catharsis is a word, but definitely reflections and memories and remembering who I was and my pals and the music I was listening to. It wasn't just the time I recorded Headmaster Ritual or Meet His Murder. It was days. I was remembering the days that were around it. Car journeys and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Just taking you back into your life. That's right. Beautiful. I watched an interview you did for the uh, That Pedal Show guys this morning. By the way, dear listener, if you want to see Johnny playing some of these guitars and picking them up and playing some of those songs he was just talking about, um, you can find that pedal show on the web. Just do a quick search for it. But you said during that conversation that this book was actually more cathartic for you than your autobiography. It was, yeah. When I went into writing the autobiography, it came out in 2016. The one thing I, th I was... Uh, I was kind of rubbing my hands like, oh, okay, catharsis. A catharsis that never came, frankly, because whenever I would read or interviews or see people talking about when they'd done their memoirs, that would, be, would always be the first question. Uh, oh, it must have been cathartic doing this book. So I thought, oh, that'll be, the, that'll be my little bonus from putting all of these hours of writing in. And it wasn't? It wasn't. And I, I talked to Pete Townsend about it. When he said, how, yeah, I was writing the book. And I said, Pete, because he's written a couple. I was like, man, I'm still waiting for this catharsis. He said, maybe there isn't any, which is a very Pete thing to say. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks, Pete. Uh, and it just wasn't. I think maybe because I'd kind of sorted so much of that story out in my mind and it was a more cerebral thing or an intellectual exercise. But this thing with the guitars was a different thing altogether. And all these stories and why I do what I do I'm hoping that if for people who aren't necessarily musicians or guitar players, or, or even people who aren't necessarily indie rock fans, that that they'll find it interesting. I try to explain, uh, try to explain why those choices are made, why someone would get a Les Paul, or why someone would get a Martin. I talk about, you know, well, to me, the Martin was synonymous with California. It was Joni Mitchell. It was Neil Young. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, those kind of connections that people who aren't quite so nerdy might not realize. How many guitars are, actually are there in, in the book? There's, I think there's 54 in the book. Obviously, there's a lot more photographs because there's four, there's sometimes five, six different really detailed, as, we, as we've said, abstract kind of arty pictures of, uh, of most of them. And then some are just, you just see the guitar. How many guitars do you actually own and how did you pick the ones that you were going to photograph? 
Well, I say in the, in the, the, the start of the book that whenever anyone asks me that question, I, I always say 132 precisely because the last time I counted, which was 10 years ago or something, I'm pretty sure that was the number. Now, some have come, well, plenty have come. Some have gone. Well, I've, I've exchanged a couple. I'm not a big seller of guitars. I'm, I'm, so a couple of my pals, are, that's their thing. They, they buy one and then sell two and then buy two and then sell one. It's never really been my thing. Also, when I started getting acquiring these guitars in the 80s from 83 onwards, first off, they weren't called vintage guitars and they were just called old guitars. Right. And secondly, they were by no stretch of the imagination, you know, as expensive as they are now. Uh, I mean, they they were expensive for a working class boy from Manchester, but sure. every little bit of money I got, I, I acquired one of these guitars. So, uh, yeah, the choice came down to, we, we photographed a lot more than they're in the book and then we pared it down and then pared it and pared it until we just got the essential story really and try to get the whole 40 year story across because there's a lot of things that happened from the 2000s, from 2005 when I joined Modest Mouse and started working with Hans Zimmer on the movies and, you know, working with the killers and Billie Eilish and people like that. It's, it's uh, that's a exciting and, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a nice thing to have, the, have in the book. The book's kind of 50, 50, it's oh, maybe 60, 40. The first half of it, I guess is, is about the eighties and then the, the rest of it is, you know, as you would imagine, the 90s and up to present day. I want to ask you about the film stuff uh, before we get to the the other music questions, but just very quickly to finish off this part of the conversation. Um, I can strum a few chords, but I don't really understand tone or how different guitars can affect the way you feel as you're playing. In fact, yeah. make you even play a certain way. I've read a couple of things where you've said you pick up a guitar and it makes you play in a certain way. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a clumsy analogy, but I guess, uh, if you get into a, a Lamborghini and then you get into a Jeep, it's kind of like that, but a bit cheaper, not much cheaper, but a little cheaper. Yeah. So, so does that mean that if, if, if you're playing a cheaper guitar, you're going to play it a little more roughly like you would, if you were driving a Jeep? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess yeah. so. Yeah. You know, I mean, some, some guitars feel very sophisticated and, uh, you don't want to thrash around on them too much. That, yeah, it's true. Then another part of it comes into play whereby, which is also true, um, that if you give the edge, any guitar, he's going to sound like the edge. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people think, well, okay, it's going to be a do with an echo and all of that, but it, just talking from a purely guitar point of view, if you give slash a strike within 10 minutes, he's five minutes he's going to sound like slash people who have got their who are lucky enough to just have a talent for having their own voice if you like on an instrument that can be imposed so that can come through so whether you're in a jeep or a, jeep or a lamborghini you know uh you eventually you're going to sound like you, yourself and you're going to drive down your own road to hammer that metaphor into the ground i, I like that analogy that works for me you talked about film, collaborating on soundtracks with Hans Zimmer on uh, a whole bunch of films from Inception through uh, Spider-Man 2, the most recent Bond movie, No Time to Die, the title track performed by Billie Eilish, which won an Oscar for Best Song. Can you describe how you and Hans connected and how that collaboration has evolved? Because I would imagine that writing for film is a completely different discipline than writing a song. 
It, it really is. Yeah. I mean, with, with Hans Zimmer, he, he kind of sought me out, uh, in 2010 because he was working on the movie Inception and, um, Hans is a very charming fella. He, uh, you know, and he, he put it to me that they tried, uh, they wanted guitar. Every time they put a guitar in there, it didn't sound right. It didn't sound good. They tried a, a, a number of different people and he, he realized that what he was looking for was, was what, what I do. And, um, that was, you know, very, obviously very flattering. And, and yeah, I was a huge fan of Hans Zimmer's stuff, Thin Red Line and all of that. So. I went over and immediately it was a, a great time because the film was great. I, I love Inception and uh, I got to do my thing on it. And um, the thing then was in 2010, uh, I, I learned a lot doing the movies. I still learn all the time. And uh, I didn't realize that guitars in movies were a complete no-no for like 30 years because it had been so overdone in the 80s. Mm. And frankly, it had dated not very well. Uh, there was a certain thing that happened. Raikou did set a really good benchmark in the seventies, but then in the eighties, there's a lot of stuff. that's kind of blues rock with lots of processing and stuff. Anyway, so directors would, would hands would tell me they were like, "Do whatever you want as long as it isn't guitar." No guitars, right? So um, I didn't know that, but he told me that right off the bat, and um, I think I was a little bit like, "Well, we'll see about that." And uh, <laughs> and then, but what's cool is that after the Inception came out. Everything sounded like Inception, which was, uh, I, I, I might sound a bit immodest. That's not on me. I felt like, uh, well, first it's all about Hans composing this amazing music, but I felt that was like a real victory for the guitar. Yeah. It was like guitars are back. And then it's on, you, you see TV adverts and there'd be someone in the surf or someone on it going down the desert and you'd hear this, which I did on a 12 string and, um, I was just allowed to do my own thing there, Nick. And I, I'm so lucky, you know, Christopher Nolan's like, so he's so great. I think being British as well, I think he knew where I was coming from. And, and then Hans and I, we did Spider-Man. We did a Julianne Moore film uh, called Freeheld. I did some stuff on Rango. I did, I built some stuff just on the side, really, as a kind of jobby musician. Yeah. And then um, in 20, I guess it's 2017, maybe 20, 28, maybe 2019, I think that he, Hans called me and said he, uh, He'd been asked to do the Bond movie. And that immediately to me sounded like, well, that's a job for the guitar because, you know, I mean, growing up in England in the 60s and 70s, it, it, James Bond is an institution, yeah. especially in England, but it's all about the guitar for me. So I, I, I went into that James Bond movie with a little bit of an attitude. Yeah. It's going everywhere. Uh, on, on Billy's, on No Time to Die on Billy's thing, it was, it's such a Billie Eilish record, which really is a testament to how strong her own style is. But her and Phineas wrote the uh, killer song, and it would have been quite easy to go over the top and just orchestrate the hell out of it. But the skill was to make it like a Bond song and keep the fragility of it, and therefore the power. And it needed to; it still needed to sound like a Billie Eilish record. It was super important to everybody. So what I did on that was just really minimal. I, I, it was, it was really simple. It was like a no brainer. Um, the most important bit for me, I thought was just putting that bond chord right on the end. I mean, that had to feel, that just had to feel so good. Oh, it was a moment. It, the thing about the bond theme, right? Especially in the, in the seventies as a kid, uh, there was two riffs. If you, if you wanted to be a guitar player, 
uh, this is for people who even just just didn't even make it past the third week. There was two things that you started to play in the seventies when you when you learned. One was I can't get no satisfaction, which is down down because it's three notes uh, all on the one string, and um, and the bond thing because it's so simple. Mm. That's why it's so brilliant. It's so simple. But when after fifty years of playing the guitar, when I was stood in front of the orchestra. And the time came to play, dum, 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 dum. this voice in my head was just going, not now, Johnny, not now. This isn't the time to, to screw up. <laughs> right. Don't overthink it because it's so simple and it was such a moment. But yeah, it was, uh, I really, that's another thing I didn't see coming. I didn't, to get back to the book for a second, when we were putting the book together, I, I had this eureka moment that that's where we end it. It starts with a photograph of me taken by my girlfriend, um, who's now my wife, uh, in 1981. The year I went back to my parents' house to kind of just regroup and lick my wounds a little bit. And I was isolated, caught myself off. But that was the year that I was starting to get the idea together for the Smiths and what I wanted the Smiths to be. Didn't have any of the other band members yet. It was just me and my girlfriend. And uh, it starts amazingly with a the one picture of me actually doing, but it's just me. And then it ends with that moment of terror stood with the orchestra doing the bomb theme. You've been waiting your whole life to do it. Yeah. Do not screw up. So I, it's, it's been amazing. It amazes me when I look at the book and go, whoa, how did that happen? Yeah. Let's jump into these music questions. I know you've got a deadline, so let's roll through them. What is your first musical memory? Really easy. First musical memories of my mother and my auntie, they both would have been uh, like 22, 21 at the time. My auntie had just bought Walk by, walk Right Back by the Everly Brothers on the pie. Uh, was it a pie? Maybe the pie label, I think. Anyway, it was a pink label. Yeah, I remember the label. Yeah. And um, I I watched these two young women. I was sat on the floor. I would have been five. I uh, watched these two young women play that record 15 times without a break and discuss it, dance around a little bit with on a a dance set on the sideboard. Uh, and to this day, if I, I hear a record that I like, I'll play it 18 times in a row. Yeah. Well, there was a time when, you know, when we were younger, um, and you didn't have a lot of money when you got a new record, that was it, man. You, you played it until you had enough money for another one. Right. That is true. Yeah. So these, these two young Irish women playing that. And the thing with it, it starts off with Chet Atkins playing a really cool little riff. Uh, that isn't a million miles away from what I do now. So I was, I was obviously attracted to something on that. Yeah. What was the first music you bought with your own money? It was a 45 by T-Rex called Jeepster. Uh, it's a real fluke that I, it's a cool one, but it, the, it was in a bargain box. And, um, the thing with it is like the, the label had a photograph of Mark Boland and Mickey Finn on it. I'd never seen a record. I don't think I've seen a record since with a photograph on the label. And, um, Frank, I just thought, uh, I hadn't heard the song. I, I just kind of thought he looked so beautiful on it. Uh, and I thought I was also getting more bang for my book because I had this photograph on it. Nice. And, uh, so I would have been 10 when I bought that. Yeah. Jeepster. I actually bought that as well when I was a kid. And I think it was the first record that was on the T-Rex label. I think it was the first one that had the T-Rex imprint right right I, I know it had lives of gas on the b-side yeah. it was a life life changer what was what was the first concert you went to without any 
adult presence or supervision? Well, the first concert I went to, I went to on my own anyway. It was Slaughter and the Dogs at the Manchester Forum in 1976. And when I was uh, writing my autobiography, and you know, the, the, these thankfully these days the internet makes it so so much simpler. And I went back to check the date. I realized that I was 12 when I went to that concert. And I remember walking back uh, through this pretty edgy council estate. I got in, would have got in maybe around about midnight. So I phoned my mother and said, uh, do you remember when I went to see that band Slaughter and the Dogs? And she's like, yeah. I said, do you know I was 12 when I went to that show? Wow. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, what were you, really? I was 12? What were you doing letting me out at 12? Yeah, but, I, you know, it's being the eldest eldest child in an Irish family, you're given a lot of independence. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was, yeah, that was my first show. What do you listen to when you want to dance? I was so into the band S Express in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Superfly Guy by S Express, I can re recommend that. Either that or just go old school and you have someone like um, Do the Bus Stop by the Fatback Band. Good bit of 70s disco. If you're feeling sad, do you listen to music that'll take you out of it or do you listen to music that'll take you into it? Pet Shop Boy's Heart, because uh, that would just elevate you. Um, it's a good listen. And I think you'd have to be made of stone to uh, not cheer up if you listen to uh, that, that track. If you could only listen to one song from now on, this is it. You're going to have to pick one song. That's all you're allowed to listen to. You're on a desert island or whatever. What, what would it be? It's a song, uh, well, it's not really a song. It's a piece of music called Peace One by John McLaughlin. Off his, uh, he's a guitar player. It's off a, uh, a record called My Goals Beyond from 1971, I believe. And uh, it's kind of everything is, is in it, really. It's kind of jazz, but uh, rock. It just has a vibe. Uh, so I think if I had to listen to something over and over again, I think I don't really want to be engaging with a singer, no matter who they are. I realized what that sounded like when I said it. Doesn't matter. Say no more. Yeah. Okay. Well, the point is this, right? If you're going to, if it's the only thing you can listen to forever, you're going to get really sick of any dude's voice after a while. That, so that is my point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I rest my case, Nick. Um, do you have a favorite music video? Yeah. I was thinking about this. Yeah. I guess really it's, um, I really like the, Blue Monday video with the dog. All right. Yeah, because um, the, the track is just so radical and kind of genius, really. And Bernard's, you know, he's my pal. I, I love the bits with the dog in it. <laughs> I'm a big dog fan. So, yeah, it's going to be Blue Monday. That, the, the, the thing about that song is that it's, I mean, that song's got to be what? Four, no, 30, 35 years old or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it still sounds utterly now sounds like it was made yesterday yeah 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 do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners sure uh there's a, a band come out of south london called sorry they're i think they're on the third album now um very interesting cool lyrics it, i think for your listeners I, th I would recommend a song called starstruck uh, it's like some, I think it's like something you would be playing anyway, Nick. So, I mean, I might have that wrong, but I think you'll like it. I'm going to check that out for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Is there a band or artist that you love, but you feel that they never quite got the break they should have gotten? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there's a, 
a band out of, um, I believe it's San Diego called Hot Snakes. And they, they came out of, um, uh, Rocket from the Crypt or Rocket from, yeah, Rocket from the Crypt with John Reese and, uh, Drive Like Jehu. And sadly, the lead singer and guitarist Rick Froberg died, I think maybe 18 months ago. Uh, and they were just like a really phenomenal band. I saw them live and, um, phenomenal group. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? I'm going to try and think of a record that is considered, um, kind of naff, but, um, that I like. So growing up, uh, this is a little, this is a whole thing. It's a little different in the United States. I think my, I discovered that my friends, my American friends, um, of a certain age, always thought ELO were a cool band and being a snotty attitude, 15 year old, only ones fan, uh, in 1978, 79, I wasn't a fan of ELO. They were everywhere, you know, hit after hit after hit. Yeah. But man, um, don't bring me down by ELO is a banger. Well, I grew up in Birmingham, which is obviously not that far from where you grew up in, in, in Manchester. And uh, I don't know as we have as many great bands out of Birmingham as, as out of Manchester, but we did have Black Sabbath and we did have ELO. And The Move. Exactly. Um, and Slade. It, it Slade, Wolverhampton, but yeah. Close oh, enough. yeah. Sorry, yeah. I mate. Yeah, I should have known better than to <laughs> say that. I realized, I yeah, I get it. I get it. But it's like saying a band from Bury is from Manchester or something. Yeah, or Liverpool even, yeah. Yeah. Last question. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling pretty zen. I have to say, uh, I think it's something to do with, I'm out here discussing the guitar book that I've just done. I was lucky enough to rope in a couple of my pals, my very, very brilliant pals to help me execute. Because of course you can't do any of this stuff on your own. So that was pretty nice. And they're pretty chilled people. I was with Fred Armisen last night and I was with Hans Zimmer the day before that. Hey, listen, it's, they're not all famous people in the public eye. So I'm out here seeing my pals and, um, so yeah, you know, it's, that's, uh, it's made me feel pretty chilled out. So bringing the old school Californian vibes, I guess, nice. rubbing off on me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate you taking a minute to, to talk to me in the middle of all this. No, it's always good to, good to see you, Nick. You know, I mean, we are still doing it, man. Thank you for the time and the, the interest and the encouragement, enthusiasm. I, I, I do appreciate you, man. Thanks. Great to see you. Thanks, mate. All right, Nick. Cheers. Have a good one. Keep doing it, man. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>